Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here with Tyler Sims, who is, uh, for over a six-year period, has been practicing contemplative prayer. And I uh, turned to Tyler, I think he has deep insights into exactly what this is and the impact it can have and the healing nature of prayer or of practicing the presence of God. We're going to talk a little bit about spiritual healing and the, the role of the Holy Spirit, the role of love, and the understanding, the unfolding uh, that this can have in uh, the healing that can take place in a person's life. And Tyler has, uh, he's devoted many years to contemplative prayer and focused on this sort of healing, and in fact has just participated in a seminar on, on healing. So this is the topic. Uh, Tyler, have I described it accurately? Yeah, sounds sounds accurate. Well, uh, practicing contemplative prayer is, and it, you know, answer the question, do you want to unleash God and creation and even your own self? Do you want to unleash that into your life and let it run wild? Your answer to that question <laughs> will... Uh, predicate whether if you want to practice contemplative prayer, because that's what it's going to do. It's going to um, unfetter the gospel in your mind and let it run wild all over your being. That sounds really exciting and everything, but you know, probably 95% or more of your prayer times are just going to be you sitting there having lots of thoughts go through your head and trying to gently let them pass while being present, you know, not, not an overly glorious experience at all steadily loosens yourself and the gospel to to have way with with your being you know in a positive way i like it i like that's good a, a beautiful description what we're describing in this i think that we can often picture the experience of god or even god himself as a kind of esoteric and distant person and the entry you know that even it's even questionable in some understandings of God in which there is a focus on God's honor or God's law or satisfying God, there's even a a question as to whether we have direct experience of who God is, which is sort of strange given the picture of the New Testament, especially books like the book of John that says God is love. And, of course, this love of God is directly tied to the Holy Spirit. That is, that if you love your neighbor, you have the love of God. That this is an, that we have immediate access into this inner Trinitarian love, communion, communication. That's there in Romans 8, that beautiful passage in which Paul talks about that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And yet there is in the human sickness, the human disease, that an obstacle can be thrown up in our path from entering into 
what is the paradise, the the love of God, the an experience, and I, 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 you know, I'm not reducing it to the experiential, but I'm afraid that we often leave the experience out of it. And what we're describing is an experience, but of course, it's an experience that we comprehend and understand through the person and work of Christ. But in the end, we need to to tie it into a real-world embodied experience. And that means that it is immediately accessible to us, and all we have to do is step through that door, is enter that reality in which the love of God is opened up to us and the world begins to shine with his glory. And we begin to see then uh, other people in that light. We begin to see the natural realm as shining forth with the glory of God. And there is this inherent joy in that realization. I think that fullness is an immediately present possibility to us. And of course, the huge question is, what is the obstacle? What is the sickness? What is the malignancy that keeps us from entering into that? Part of the reading and understanding of how we read the New Testament is step one is we need a diagnosis of the human disease and the cure. And of course, this is the depiction that there is a wall of hostility. There is a kind of oppressive law that is put upon us. There is a squelching, a suppressing, perhaps of those characteristics and attitudes which would allow us allow us to enter in to this reality. And yet, maybe human culture, the norms of society, are such that we are shaped to in some way miss this reality. I think that's the, the sickness, that's the disease. And that what, what's happening in, for example, gospel episodes in which Christ has encounters with the woman at the well, for example, and Nicodemus, is that he's giving a diagnosis of the disease and inviting entry into this fullness. That's a kind of setup, then, I think, for recognizing what we're missing and in some way cultivating our own characteristics, our own attitudes that we might otherwise suppress, reject as a kind of unreality, a kind of weakness, and yet in uh, that those are the very things, a kind of spiritual discernment, a kind of appreciation for entering in not just to the presence of God, but into the presence of other people, and in that presence then entering into the presence of God. One of the things that happens to us in the process of being enculturated, there are certain characteristics about us left unappreciated, unacknowledged, and and as a result, squelched. And uh, given the right resources, the right group of people, that there is a, a bringing out of an appreciation for things that, in fact, kind of get left behind. Is that the case in your own experience? That is. That resonates strongly in in my experience. Uh, There's a a phrase by an author. His last name is Binner. He's a a Christian psychologist and, well, he's a psychologist and and a a Christian. 
with a practice of being a spiritual director as well. In the book, uh, The Gift of Being You, he has a phrase as follows, to be deeply human and fully alive, which you could probably uh, bring alongside Jesus's invitation to live life to the fullest. And it's this deeply human and fully alive that seems to be very much emaciated in much of the United States and our cultures here. Those large pieces of us that are being unacknowledged and not affirmed, but also very much uh, unexplored, left in the shadows. Those pieces of, uh, of us are large territories of who we are, and we very much need them to find, first and foremost, in my experience, to find peace. And also these parts of us that have been unexplored and left behind in our culture, these parts of being deeply human, they're very much a part, uh, an integral part of how we connect to God, to ourselves, to other people, to creation. And therefore, the human experience and the experience of, of God and, and the earth and cosmic reality. So yeah, in my experience, in terms of you mentioned this sort of rediscovery of being deeply human, of being um, fully alive and embodying the Imago Dei and in connection to our earthiness, that we are that we are of the earth. Community is uh, a part of that and an integral part of discovering the revelation of who we are individually and also as a community. And then, you know, I would say, at least in my experience, and these things aren't purely chronological, uh, they overlap and sort of mishmash along the chronological story and interweave community and also spirit and the New Testament, a Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, I think preceding various forms of experience and embodied in a sense, embodied revelation. If scripture is revelation that has been recorded, the canon has been recorded in writing, at one point it probably felt very much like embodied revelation for the people who originally experienced it. And then we received it in writing. As McClendon talks about, what was the one where it circles back, where you read the canon, you read scripture, you live it, and then you come back with a new perspective to that same scripture as a community. You read it, you live it, you know, it's that embodied hermeneutic. Yeah. And so there's this interplay between the spirit and the community of God. At least in my story, the community of God has sometimes been quite vibrant and usually pre pretty small in terms of numbers of people, you know. Mm -hmm. two people, six people maybe. And then that contact is oftentimes hard to continue to access the way our culture is set up, movement, things of that nature. So this interplay between how community is preparing one a person to become deeply human and fully alive and to receive a sense of embodied revelation from both community and uh, the Holy Spirit and from God. And then also how the, the Spirit is preparing and cultivating the person to receive that embodied revelation to to become more deeply human or as jesus talks about to live life to the fullest it's been a for, for me i would say that at least in the last six years which is when i started contemplative prayer my awareness of the activity of the spirit uh, in my life has been increasing 
and my awareness of the love of I am, of God, of our creator has also been increasing. And as I experienced and become more aware of that activity, of that dynamic through the practice of contemplative prayer, there's this simultaneous, and maybe it's maybe it's delayed in my own experience or, or delayed in my own awareness, but there is this simultaneous unfolding of myself as becoming more human. And in so doing, uh, we could say metaphorically that my eyes begin to unfold and see more. And as that happens, the love of other people, both from me and also being received by me, becomes more accessible. And so the the work of the revelation or the embodied revelation that can happen in contemplative prayer has very much prepared the grounds for me to be in community and to be able to receive people as they are with love and to receive their gifts that they might share with me as they are, not as I would wish them to be, not as I would pull and grasp from them, but as they are, that skill and gift of being able to love and receive people as they are allows for community to grow and for me to be received by community. And that is connected to the work of the Spirit and contemplative prayer as my own illusions about myself begin to be steadily pulled off. If I was walking around in the desert and I had 30 layers of clothes on, it's excessive <laughs> and it's not it's not what's needed. It's not what's real. Contemplative prayer and the work of the Spirit in, in and through that, that space has allowed me to shed these illusory articles of clothing. And the closer I get to who I am in contact with God, who I am in contact with the earth and creation, and who I am in contact with myself, the more I'm able to accept myself, the more I am able to accept others and be in community. And those dynamics of letting loose of the illusions of receiving uh, embodied revelation and affirmation from God, from the Spirit, through the space of contemplative prayer, these dynamics set in motion the ability for me to increasingly see things as they are and people as they are. And therefore, in a sense, perhaps the Spirit is able to flow through and work through me more and call forth the community-loving aspects of, of individuals, to call that forth from them. And also, in my eyes, being able to see more clearly, people can call forth the true parts of me that want to be in community. And that creates a, a dynamic of the community unfolding in a life-giving way that affirms being deeply human. And as that uh, occurs, I think if that experience could be bottled up and, and shared in a beverage, I think people would affirm that, hmm, this sort of, this feeling sort of uh, reminds me of the feeling I get when I imagine the church as described in various stories throughout the New Testament canon. Can I ask you a basic, simple question? What is contemplative prayer? Contemplative prayer is the man or the woman in the desert, and they know with every cell of their being and into the very depths of their heart what they desire is also what they need, and they will only have and only accept what quenches that thirst. Contemplative prayer is that man or woman in the desert who is seeking that divine, holy water that springs forth from the home, which we call earth, and it's the refusal to accept any 
other offering other than that life-giving water. It's the persistent quest to discover and participate in drinking that water. And in their search, contemplative prayer is the gift of having found a practice which has been passed down from potentially the days of Jesus, certainly very, very soon afterwards, you know, the early first century, second century. Contemplative prayer is that man and woman in the desert meeting someone who can pass on that gift of a practice, of a vehicle for receiving life-giving waters. And in the persistent application of that practice by the man or the woman, contemplative prayer is the gift of that earnest desire of that human, meaning the gift of the earnest desire and love of God. In those two two realities coming into contact, the illusory false self of that man or woman is shed day by day as they practice prayer, week by week, month by month, tear by tear, laughter even shared with God in that space. And also, you know, scores and scores of hours of sitting there with seemingly no activity except for the dedication of being willing to be with God. It's the practice of human presence, lowercase p, paying attention and giving priority to being in capital P presence of, of I am. And, you know, describing what that looks like is something I could do in terms of the functional steps of contemplative prayer. But it's, it's this falling off of the scales that Paul speaks of in, in Acts, the scales falling off the eyes, but only the scales of a human on this earth through the process of losing those scales through the process of something like contemplative prayer is not a one-time act. It's a hundred thousand scales falling off one at a time in the presence of God's love and the reality of that human's love for God. Um, and one of the fruits of that is, oh, I had a quote here by Thomas Merton. Uh, one of the primary gifts of contemplative prayer is twofold. You really need both. One is to increasingly realize through through prayer that so much of our human experience and our conceptual experience of divinity of God, of creation, ourselves, depends on our idea of God. And uh, here's Thomas Merton. Yet no idea of him, however pure and perfect, is adequate to express him as he really is. Our idea of God tells us more about ourselves than about him. So part of the gift is steadily shedding the illusions we have about who God is. And this is why we, we also need, we need you know, the intellectual aspect, the academic, the, the theological as we find it in writing. Those are all a part of the salvific conversation. But we also need the experiential because there's a place where we reach, as Moses did, where we, where we come in contact with God and that answer, I am that I am, it mystifies us as it should. And experience is an experience of God and of ourselves. An embodied revelation allows us to also acknowledge the humble situation we are in as humans, uh, that our idea of God tells us more about ourselves than about him. And the gift of contemplative prayer is that it helps that continually shift and continually expose areas of, of healing that we need in our relation to God. And your description of that healing is the scales falling off the eyes, a capacity to see. Yes, yes. Um, 
to to describe that the scales falling off the eyes through this daily or close to daily practice of uh, something like contemplative prayer, Burton describes those scales, which you know he, you've explored uh, through theological reading and writing and discourse and your own experience in life. You can see these in your class. This in your class here, Merton uh, describes those scales that fall off from the experience of prayer. The obstacle is in ourself, that is to say, in the tenacious need to maintain our separate external egotistic will. It is when we refer all things to this outward and false self that we alienate ourselves from reality and from God. It is then the false self that is our God, and we love everything for the sake of this self. We, we do not thereby make creation evil, but we use creation to increase our attachment to our illusory self. It's in the, the sitting, the daily sitting, the contact with creation and sitting in creation. Sitting, you know, you can sit, you can sit inside, oftentimes outside is a good, uh, helpful context. It's in this sitting, in this simply being there, slowing down, breathing, doing the silent prayer that is contemplative prayer letting go of words and being present to creation and to God that we slowly learn to release our hands from its tight grip of wanting to possess what is, why, all these questions, opening the opening our hands and allowing slowly and steadily through um, sometimes the furnace <laughs> or the fire of contemplative prayer, other times, you know, the soft, gentle, a nourishing rain of contemplative prayer, but through that sitting and being present to creation, dropping the scales, not only of our own selves and of how we see God, also of how we try and manipulate our reality and creation and form it to our illusions. We've often used the metaphor of the, the movie, the matrix. You can, inhabit a, uh, a kind of false world with false values that is completely removed from reality. Or you can pass into the desert of the real, which can be a painful experience in, in a sense, but of course, painful is not exactly it. Maybe, you know, the picture in the matrix, as in the New Testament, is something on the order of being reborn or drawn out of uh, a vat of amniotic like fluid and realizing, you know, the muscles that you have and beginning to exercise them. Whereas they've mm. been, they've been left in you're so weak that you can hardly move in the beginning. Mm. Maybe that's, you know, in the stories in the Bible, the, the difference between the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, and Nicodemus, Nicodemus can't even conceive that he might be in a vat of amniotic fluid, that he's got these unused, suppressed capacities because he is caught up in the matrix of being a religious leader, uh, a teacher of the Jews, and yet just basic things of the spirit are incomprehensible to him yeah yeah that's that's a very apt um highlighting uh, uh of the matrix metaphor 
coming out of that amniotic fluid and and neo or others that that are extracted transitioned out of that fluid needing to discover their muscles reactivate them since it's a movie it's kind of a fast process but if it wasn't a movie i'm sure it would take you would see it unfold over a long period of time recovering those muscles so how do we recover being deeply human and fully alive when you look at jesus's habits of he he would teach verbally i i just recently was provoked by the question in my mind how did jesus move as a human physically how did he use eye contact you know how did his nonverbal cues uh, contribute to his uh, expression and example of being deeply human fully alive isn't that what calls us to jesus many of us the desire we see in him and his teachings we see in him and his actions we see we even feel his heart and we want to experience and to live out something very similar and i i say something very similar because in the evangelical world there's a high high ordered emphasis on being just like jesus and it creates quite a bit of pressure to be just like jesus <laughs> when the reality is we're not jesus uh, i'm tyler and you're paul and uh, your spouse is faith my children are ty and sophia we're we're uh, our own selves and with our own purposes. And yet we see Jesus in the Gospels and we want what he's inviting us into. We want what he's demonstrating. So how did he move? How did he, how did he uh, look at people? How did he use his eyes? How did he raise and drop and whisper, you know, with his voice, the volume, you know, all of these things. What did he look like? What did it feel to behold this deeply human and fully alive being? named Jesus and eventually Jesus Christ. And so you, you'll see him, he's interacting with people through his words, his teachings, through his movement, through his touch, so often through his touch, even people wanting to touch him to make contact with, with Jesus. And here's the curious thing. What did he often, what did he often do scattered and smattered throughout all the gospel stories? What did he often do when he seemed tired or when he had had quite a bit of activity going on or, or oftentimes it doesn't say why what was one of the things he often did he would withdraw and he would go into oftentimes a garden or the hills or it'd be at nighttime and he would pray and in and some of the accounts he'd pray for hours and hours and later on you know all night what was he doing how was he praying was he talking with words the whole time when he so often dealt with words in his teachings and the sermon you know he'd do his sermons he would interact with people's words and questions perhaps he needed silence perhaps he needed to sit and simply be in the presence of god bring his presence into the presence of his creator in the presence of the spirit in the presence of creation and into the presence of the way god moves through all those uh, through creation. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm really curious about the desire and need Jesus felt when he would withdraw. And if he was letting all the words and ideas and, and the temptation to create illusion with our words and the grasping with our words, if he was letting all that fall off and experiencing um, both the spirit and the other aspects of being deeply human while being present with himself and with you know the Father. For me, after doing uh, this practice for six years, 
I find a lot of solace and, and deeply resonate with Jesus's movements into the garden or into the night, into solitude, not as alienation, but as the loving space that creates room to see things as they are, that you might bring love and peace to people and communities as they are and as you are. So that there, you know, there is a, uh, a disconnectedness that is overcome. In other words, as long as we are in the matrix, caught up in the whatever that might be, in the case of Nicodemus uh, being a religious teacher, being a Jew, being a follower of the law, in contrast to the woman and Jesus, you use the word desire, and she seems very much in touch with desire, and they share a cup at a well. You know, wells are places where couples get together, where marriages happen, where desire is, as, as Jesus says, can be fulfilled. That is, here is one person who, you know, Nicodemus, who is, seems totally out of touch, has suppressed, repressed. And here's a woman who certainly is misdirected in her desire. Maybe it's misplaced. I don't even know if that's the right word, but in some way it's foreshortened in the imminent circumstance of eroticism. It's not that the erotic in some way is an obstacle, but it could be an obstacle if it's seen as an end in itself. But if it's seen as a kind of primer for agape love, you know, this is Nigren's depiction. You know, he, he writes the long book on love and depicts the erotic and agape as two separate realms. But actually in the early church, in someone like Dionysius, the Areopagite, he directly connects the erotic with agape and says there's no problem in fusing those two things. In fact, he equates them, that the erotic is agape. And certainly the one leads into the other. What that seems to be saying is that human experience, human embodiedness is not an obstacle, but it is the medium. Uh, it is the means. I mean, how could it be otherwise that we come into and have experience of God? And it seems like what your description of contemplative prayer is, is a, a recognition then of this kind of aesthetic recognition of us, maybe even essential recognition. Certainly it's the senses that are brought alive, the sense of the presence of God, uh, so that we don't squelch desire, but in fact, we pursue it to its end. Mm, yes. Yes, to not squelch desire, but to pursue it to its end, uh, only to find that the end keeps on expanding before you in a, in a sense of mystery while uh, revealing the truth of your desire along this sort of, yeah, this endless path. That's the way, so, Dion yeah, Dionysius, it, it, it's interesting you describe it that way because he describes it as circular, that God going outside of, outside of himself, that is, this is God's desire that moves him, the, the love of God moving him outside of himself and returning unto himself, 
but that's uh, that's a mm. depiction of all of reality this this movement of love of loving desire that is uh continuous and definitive yes uh so now we're we're mo- we're certainly and i'm i'm thankful you brought love into the equation uh, for that that is the uh that's all of the equation <laughs> yeah of course yeah now we're really uh treading into the realm of the mystics the christian mystics saint john of the cross uh, catherine of siena Teresa of avila francis of assisi are examples who merge the erotic and the divine without hesitation and is there a better dynamic a better relation a better space or a more helpful and safe space to uncover uh what it means to be human um and to have desire or or erotic desire which i wonder if erotic desires simply in its truest form the critical mass of love coming to an apex you know and releasing its shouts of joy from the mountaintops is there a safer and healthier place to uh discover and and uncover your uh deep humanity and fully aliveness so to speak then uh, in the presence of God, we can learn this through books, uh, and we certainly learn it as a full human and um, in an embodied way. We learn that God is always here. Uh, we can't, you know, David understood this. Couldn't go anywhere to escape God. God is in the midst of everywhere we are, and in the midst of, in a mysterious way, in the midst of every cell of our human uh, components. And so God is always with us. The question is, are we always with God in our awareness, in our experience? And as the sensations begin to, st- as, an Amer- as Americans, or not all Americans, but as many Americans, um, or spiritual Americans, we might have lots of sensations going on in our head. Right, Paul? Right in the head. <laughs> it's all in the head. This is in the head, right? <laughs> and, and I think that a, quite a bit of that false self, that illusory, that ego of Romans, seven is in the head and so when we sit and we're and we're silent and we let the words drop from our our being and we practice that in a you know in in a place here on earth that god has created and in in, in god's presence and in our own presence we slowly and steadily learn to go from our head to starting to feel the sensations of being alive and grateful and in connection with god in our fingertips and to let that move to our hands and our forearms and through our body. This is a lot. This is a long process, but it's a very faithful and steady process. And as that happens, to understand in a deep knowing, in a deep embodiment, the revelation that we see, in especially and grasp, especially in the New Testament canon, that we are loved, that God is love, that we are love. Foundationally, we are love. The illusion is that we're not. That we're not. That we're bad or sinful or evil or maybe we're a mixture of good and evil or love and hate no the 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 truth learned in an embodied fashion sitting quietly dropping words day by day week by week month by month year by year the truth that sinks into all the cells of our being and starts to awaken our deep humanness is that god is love and we are love and in that joining in that contact between creator and creation, creator and child of God, and then that revelation that we are love, and we cannot be anything other. 
and God is in that contact, yes, there might be erotic, you know, erotic, erotic feelings, feelings of of great joy and impulse to to shout the gratitude, you know, to the mountaintops. Um, and you'll see that in the mystics and in their poetry. And what's so this is an interesting place for a, a podcast with words. The mystery of the mystics. So yeah, I've heard a fair, a fair amount of skepticism in regards to the mystics. And, I, and uh, from a per certain perspective, uh, it's understandable. However, what's going on with the mystics is that they're taking embodied revelation, which is the image of the canon being incarnated into the human being. Not only Jesus, who was, in, you know, the incarnation. You know, he was the capital I incarnate one, mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. Well, we are also being incarnated, and as we experience that embodied revelation, which is a mirror, it's a mirror of the canon, that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. It might scare us a little bit. It might surprise us, um, or, or it will surprise us in our communities and the people who see us as we become deeply human, fully alive, as clearly the communities in Israel were, um, and Judea were surprised by Jesus walking around. With all of his mirroring and, and incarnation of the canon and of God being love and of each of us being love, he was startling. So there, this is the thing when the, the skepticism points itself at the mystics from theology and other quarters, is that you're taking a deeply embodied revelation, embodied, and anyone listening, you know, you can rub your hands together and your fingers together and think embodied. Um, this deeply embodied revelation that awakens the whole being. Some people would describe that as soul, but it wakes the whole being of the human. And then when they try to describe it in poetry or in writing, it's like trying to put a name to God and God simply says, I am that I am, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a chasm that um, when the experience of the deeply embodied person in deep communion with themselves and with God, and as, and as a part of that, also by necessity, deep communion with their community around them. As that person tries to convey this experience, there's a gap that occurs between their experience and the words they put in writing, ripe to be criticized and misunderstood. And it's the space between their experience and their writing and the provocativeness of that writing, which sometimes is erotic in uh, description. It's the space between where there's mystery and an invitation for people to journey in to the truth of that mystery. And that's what contemplative prayer is in a sense, is it's an invitation to day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, to experience the unfolding of the truth of the mystery of God. And as that continues, it somehow steadily presents itself through the various stages of prayer experience and growth as the truth that's within the mystery of God. You can't outpace it. You can live it. You can understand it. You can verbalize and non-verbally non resonate with the truth you are receiving and affirm that there's still the mystery of God, the mystery of the gospel. And again, it's not chronological. These things overlap in, in all kinds of ways. It's this work, um, and other spiritual practices can help, also help in this way, but it's this work of contemplative prayer, this practice of sitting in silence in the presence of God and oneself and creation that uh, 
prepares fertile soil for community to be received by the person practicing this and for community to be facilitated and created by the person practicing this. It's a humble interchange, those two, two realities that unfold for the for prayer has shown that in my own illusions, I have been pushing community away. In my own illusions, I have criticized or judged people that otherwise were offering community. And as these illusions drop, this fertile soil for both receiving community and creating community, and that circle there is loosened and able to move and allow the spirit to flow through that dynamic, which really leads to the other aspect of this, if there's contempt, there's practices like prayer or contemplative prayer, and then and also there is the uh, the seeds and the nourishment that come from community. And these two things, you must have each communion with humans feeds communion with the self and with God and that that prayer that prayer relationship. In turn, the prayer relationship and solitude feeds communion. And there isn't one, you cannot stay in prayer, contemplative prayer or other forms of prayer. You cannot stay in that, that space and withhold, and withhold yourself into it because the prayer itself and the spirit itself that begins to move more freely in the human issues for so much gratitude and, and desire and joy that uh, the only, in some ways, the only you know, necessary drive is uh to bring and share this and be you know with community and to to see how community can feed and nourish your own journey that uh you got to go tell other people or you've got to be a part of other people that there's a sharing aspect to it not a kind of crude a continuation of the sharing that's been experienced and not a kind of crude manipulation or I, I'm thinking here of the woman going to get the whole village. And then when they uh, come, they eventually say, well, now we believe on the basis of our own sharing in Christ and not on the basis simply of what you've, it, it is naturally a, a, an expanding kind of shared experience, maybe. Yes. Yeah. And it's a mutual sharing it's a. It's also a, a circle, the you know the to go out into the village and share. I found the good news of prayer, or of mm-hmm. contact with, with God, mm-hmm. and I've also found the good news. And you are the good news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. the community. You the community are the good news to me. Mm-hmm. You bring the good news to me, yeah. and I have good news of prayer of con you know in this case of, of prayer and the contact uh with with god and yeah with jesus mm. yeah it's beautiful that's beautiful i appreciate the the conversation here yeah i appreciate that tyler yeah thanks thank you forging plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.